Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode, after a youth spent largely in St. Louis and Glen Carbon and a stint in the military, Charlie Berger moved several times before he settled in Saline County which would be his home for the rest of his life. He was also responsible for the death of William Chubby Otten in 1908, for which he was acquitted. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 2 Bootlegging Days If Berger lived in Harrisburg for some time before moving to Ledford, as some assert, the records fail to show it. The matter of chronology aside, it was at Ledford, patches of coal miners' houses southwest of Harrisburg, where he first came to prominence in southern Illinois. With him came wife Edna, a statuesque blonde from East St. Louis, whom he had married in Clayton, Missouri, on March 22, 1913. In the summer of 1913, Charlie Berger bought a lot in Ledford, near the spur of the streetcar line, and soon thereafter, he was in the business he knew best, that of selling whiskey and beer to miners. His methods of obtaining the merchandise varied, for those who patronized his combination saloon restaurant, he had the beer barrels shipped to El Dorado via the Chicago, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and St. Louis Railroad, better known as the Big Four. At El Dorado, the barrels were switched off on the car line and sent on their way to the Ledford Spur. The conductor at the time was John Small, a hefty fellow from Harrisburg who would one day be sheriff of Saline County. Berger would often hire a team and wagon from Billy Morris to haul the beer to his saloon. Always packed in sawdust, most of the barrels would end up in his barn, where there was a cooling device. It was probably nothing more than ice packed within the sawdust. Leo Morris recalled that when his dad's wagon was returned, there would always be one barrel remaining. Much of the beer he sold to this community of many patches was also shipped directly to the Ledford train depot. Only a boy at the time, George Cummins helped Jim Mofield deliver some of the barrels in a horse-drawn hack to the hamlet of Five Patch. Some, but not all. According to Cummins, It would come up from mounds down by Cairo on the passenger train that came through there, and they'd set it off there at the depot, and the miners would come out on paydays or on Saturdays. They'd get the beer, and they'd all get across the railroad there along the bank. They had places cleaned off where they'd drink their beer, shoot craps, and play poker. They had a little old stand of a thing and laid the barrel down on its side. They drove a spade in. When they'd drawn so much, it would quit running. They'd take a hammer and knock that side bottom down so it would get air and it would run until the keg went dry. 
From the beginning, Charlie's easy manner won him friends. From the children of the village who gathered at the cinder walks to play or to loaf or to lunch on ice cream, soda pop, or candy bars that could be purchased inside his restaurant, Berger was something of an overseer, since most of their fathers worked in the mines. A boy at that time, Leo Morris well remembered how Berger would come out on the porch wearing his usual summer attire of blue serge pants, sheep-lined house shoes, and a BVD undershirt. Usually, he was hatless. When enough youngsters were about, he would very often brighten their day by bringing out a cigar box full of change. One of his men, most often John Bard, who actually ran the place, would hold the box while Charlie threw the contents into the air. Cinders would fly as the eager youngsters scrambled for the coins. Above the melee could be heard the guttural laughter of the one whose coins had started it all. It was a great show and, according to Morris, one that occurred almost daily when the weather permitted. Most of the time, Berger seemed glad to have the children around, but once when he wanted to get them out of his hair, he persuaded them and John Barn to peddle some watermelons. Leo Morris recalled it well. He used to have a Model T Roadster made like a pickup. Charlie always had a few things to sell, just as a blind. He always had watermelons and different things. I remember one time in particular. I don't know why he wanted us out of the place of business, but he said to John Bard, you go out there and get those watermelons and put them in that truck and take them boys with you and go peddle them. So we did. We never put in over 10, I guess. We had about that many boys in there. We come down through the patch and down by the railroad and up to Dorisville and back down Goat Row and down Liberty Road and back to the railroad station. Well, the railroad station was high off the ground and there was a ditch in it and a lot of guys used to slip in there and have their drinks, you know. Now, John stopped there. We never stopped nor asked a soul to buy a watermelon, so we had all that he'd had when we left. He said since we couldn't sell the watermelons, we'd just eat them. You know what that meant. We got out of the truck, got the melons, got under there, sat down and ate the whole bunch. When we got back, Charlie asked John how many we had sold. When John told him we hadn't sold any but ate them all, Charlie said, that's good. Berger was no less accommodating with the adults of the community. Few in Ledford had cars. Even fewer had telephones. But Berger had both. In the event of an emergency, those cars were available. But one of his men had to do the driving. The cars were never loaned out. If someone needed a doctor and didn't have the money to pay the bill, Berger was the man to see. He would call the doctor and tell him to come down to Ledford and to add the fee to his own bill. When the family got on its feet again, that is, when the man got back to work in the mines, Berger expected to be paid back in full. I don't guess he got beat out of a dime, said Morris. On at least one occasion, his generosity was extended to the community, Morris related. One time, they had an ice cream social down here in 14 Patch. Charlie sent a couple of boys down there, and they built a little stand. They got the ice cream from the Busy Bee up on Harrisburg Square, Charlie had them send the ice cream down in five-gallon freezers, and he furnished all the soda pop and everything. When it was going that night, I happened to be there, and Charlie came up and laid down a $20 bill and said to treat the kids until it was all gone. When it was all over, he went back down there and picked up all the stuff, took it all back to his place. Damn if he didn't pay for what was left, and he gave it to them in the first place. Despite his well-advertised generosity, not everyone liked him. In particular, there was a family by the name of Pulley who also had a phone. Mrs. Pulley was especially antagonistic toward Ledford's prime booze vendor. Anytime she suspected that he was breaking the law, 
she would ring up the Saline County Sheriff. And even Billy Morris, who considered Berger his friend, had reason not to trust him completely. On one occasion, while sitting in the rocking chair in front of the grate in Morris's home, Berger observed that Billy had not worked much in the mines that summer. To that, his host could only nod in agreement. Then came the proposition. With Billy's approval, Berger would build a garage on the corner of Morris's land, drive one of his cars inside, get the car insured, let it set for a time, and then quietly burn the building down. Half the insurance money would come in handy for an out-of-work miner's family, he said. No doubt it would have, but the cool reception from his would-be partner effectively killed the scheme. Early in 1914, Berger was charged with rape, but on December 21st, the charge was stricken from the court docket. Harrisburg businessman and gambler Dan Lockwood provided his bond. On June 11, 1915, eight witnesses heard Berger threaten to kill Oscar Ridley. After Ridley signed a complaint, a peace warrant was issued, and Perry Kane, a constable from Harrisburg, arrested Berger on June 14th. On June 15th, Justice of the Peace Edward Strickland ruled that Berger was to keep the peace toward Oscar Ridley for one month from that day, and if he failed to do so, he would forfeit his bond. The remainder of the bond would be paid by J. Milo Pruitt, as previously agreed upon. There is no evidence that Charlie broke the peace during the ensuing month, or that he or his friend Pruitt, who was considered one of the wealthiest men in Harrisburg, had to pay the money. Berger did have to pay the court costs. In addition to his difficulties with the law, problems of a personal nature were now at hand. On November 29, 1915, he and Edna were separated, although their divorce was not official until 1917. Never one to lack for female companionship, Berger would in later years lament the fact that their marriage had not been a success. He would recall the good times, such as the night they were walking home from a christening, and Edna slipped and fell into a pond, all but ruining her gorgeous blue dress. When Charlie tried to pull her to Bankside, the pond claimed yet another victim, but they had great fun laughing about their soaking. Of course, Edna was furious the time he brought several chorus girls home. Such stunts as that might have prompted the breakup of the marriage, but never far in the background was Berger's increasing notoriety, which also may have been a factor. Like many coal mining communities, Lenford had a reputation for toughness. Not totally deserved, according to some local residents. Of course, there were fights, and not anemic tussles either. They were real fist-to-nose encounters, where the cinder grit got mixed up with bits of tooth and a fair amount of blood, and wherein the coal-dust-laden air was ripe with curses that, if edited, could have passed for poetry. Berger's place was the scene of many such bouts. But there were other bootleggers in and around Levford who could be counted on for the stuff to fuel those free-for-all. The locals blamed most of the trouble on outsiders who flocked to burgers and the other less well-known joints for a rollicking good time. Sometimes the rollicking simply got out of hand. Even without the outsiders, there was sufficient friction to spark an occasional brawl. Unhappily, two elements contributed most to the discord. One element was the people of Eastern Europe, the Lithuanians, the Hungarians, and the Polish. Clannish, they congregated mostly in town. Their ways were strange, but their homes were neat. Some of them never quite learned the language. They were called hunkies. The people who called them hunkies, the Kentucky Crackers, were the other element. They lived for the most part outside the town. Like the foreigners, 
They had been drawn to Saline County by the promise of work in the mines. Unlike the Lithuanians and Hungarians and other East Europeans, their homes were often less than presentable. That gibberish spouting hunkies just off the boat could come to the Midwest and show them up for the slovenly hillbillies they were was a galling fact of life. What the crackers usually failed to take into account was that while they had important activities with which to fill their free time, such as hunting and drinking, the foreigners with their language problem could best spend their free time fixing up their modest homes and drinking. With undercurrents of hostility combined with the ever-present liquor, Ledford was a typical Southern Illinois coal mining community. No less typical was Charlie Berger, who provided the extra touches to what was, after all, the miner's hard and rather drab existence. For the lonely, he had women. For the thirsty, he had almost every drink imaginable, including champagne. Best of all, he even had a couple of black entertainers who played guitar and banjo. One of them had worked in a carnival, and his specialty was making up songs about real people. All this clever soul needed to set him off on a spasm of creation was a name and the promise of a drink at song's end. He rarely failed to please the customer. Popular with the crowd, many of whom had been immortalized on the spot, this black lyricist would invariably end the offerings with the theme song containing the line, Come after breakfast, bring your dinner, and go home before supper time. Another notable personage was D.P. Pat Bybee, an officious little gentleman who claimed to be an attorney. Usually drunk, Bybee bore an uncanny resemblance to W.C. Field, with manners to match. Once, a young girl whose mother worked for Berger found a man lying in the window box at Charlie's place and cried out, Oh, Mama, here's another dead man. It was, however, only the town's attorney out from about with the bottle. The lass who found him would blossom into quite a drinker herself and would be known as the blonde bombshell. Needless to say, she reappears in this narrative. Little is known of the bartender, one Henry Sevenshoe, except that he lent his presence and remarkable nickname to the establishment. Next time, Yates fired one shot that tore through Berger's coat. That shot was followed by three others, but now Berger was doing the shooting. That concludes another episode of Blanket Ford Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and online at BlanketFordRadioTheater.com to learn more about this project. Build your own Blanket Fort and tell a story.